Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Educating Humans, a podcast about classical and liberal education in Australia, particularly for P-12 schools. We are going to continue the conversation we've been having for the last couple of episodes, all about C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, and we'll pick up exactly where we left off in the discussion of what Lewis has described as the understanding, the historical understanding of objective value that actually exists in the world, something that he has called the Tao. C.S. Lewis is so clear in this. If you just understand that the Tao is the doctrine of objective value, that's it. It's just right and wrong and the way the world exists. That is yeah. the Tao. Yeah, he, he goes on to say exactly that. He says it's it's the doctrine of objective value. It's the belief that certain attitudes are really true and others really false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of things that we are. Those who know the Tao can hold that to call children delightful or old men venerable is not simply to record a psychological fact about our own parental or filial emotions at the moment, but to recognize a quality which demands a certain response from us, whether we make it or like. And he gives a really concrete example of himself. He says, I myself do not enjoy the society of small children, but because I speak from within the Tao, I recognize this as a defect in myself, just as a man may have to recognize that he is tone deaf or colorblind. And because our approvals or disapprovals are thus recognitions of objective value or responses to an objective order, Therefore, and this is a real clanger for the modern sensibilities, right? Therefore, emotional states can be in harmony with reason when we feel liking for what ought to be approved or out of harmony with reason when we perceive that liking is due but we cannot feel it. No emotion is in itself a judgment. In that sense, all emotions and sentiments are illogical. But they can be reasonable or unreasonable as they conform to reason or fail to conform. The heart never takes the place of the head, but it can and should obey it. That's a really, really key bit of text there. I mean, I think it's worth highlighting or re-going over those, those main bits. If we have a doctrine of objective value, then our emotions all of a sudden have another layer on top of them. Is that our emotions either do or do not conform to the objective value of things. Either we are in unison with the Tao, which is what St. Augustine describes as virtue. That's autoamorous, us actually having the affections which the Tao kind of aligns with. Or we're not virtuous in that sense. We are wrong. Some people may hear this and think that it's kind of painting a black and white world where we don't actually get to interact or choose anything. But I would argue it's the opposite, mm. because if you have a world that your opinion instantly is the thing that governs it, that your will is what bends the notions of reality, well, all of a sudden, you're not interacting with it at all. All of a sudden, you're just interacting with your own emotions, and the world could be doing whatever. It wouldn't matter. The world doesn't even need to be there. You could look at a photo of something, and it could be the exact same experience as actually being there, you know? Mm, absolutely. Or even, or even more, someone could say a word to you in your mind and you could think about what that means they could say you know or they could say what a beautiful painting and you could come up with a beautiful painting in your head and you've had the exact same experience as you would if you actually got to go and see a beautiful painting by leonardo you know this is if we are subscribing to this then we are devaluing everything and our own experience of the world 
Yeah, and that's the crazy thing is I, I would suggest, as I've said before, that while people talk this talk, no one actually walks this walk. People say they believe this. People sign up to this philosophy, but people, it's impossible to live like this. No one really believes that everything is 100% subjective and there's, and it's just their own perspective on things because no one lives like that. Everyone speaks as if, as if there's objective value in the world because they make claims that suggest that other people should believe in them. Well, why you wouldn't even have an argument. You wouldn't even bother with a discussion about anything if there's nothing to actually believe in, if it's just my personal subjective experience. And this is exactly the point that Lewis goes on to make. Remember, we're talking education here. He says, therefore, the educational problem is wholly different according as you stand within or without the Tao. So the educational problem, the process of education, the purpose of education, how you would go about educating young people is completely different if you believe in the Tao and stand within it, or if you reject the Tao and therefore stand without it. For those within, the task is to train in the pupil those responses which are in themselves appropriate whether anyone is making them or not, and in making which the very nature of man consists. That's an interesting point he's made there. Like to be human, to be properly human is to respond appropriately to things, to have the right emotional responses to things which accord to reason, which accord to reality. And remember that is in contrast to the trousered ape or the urban blockhead. These, these, these humans which are kind of less than human because they've rejected part of what it means to be human when, when we hear this it does sound a bit that doesn't make too much sense uh you think oh well being human is just how i like things and how i don't like things but if you think about it the other way what does it mean to be inhuman and when you really think about the inhuman person someone acts inhumanely when they act in a way that does not uh align with an objective way that they should value things exactly there, there are evils and we all understand that there are evils and these evils are inhuman because they are against the Tao. exactly and you know my burrito and children example is a good one it's inhuman it's inhumane of me to treat a burrito better than i treat my children we all know that but that's exactly what he's talking about the fact that we all know that demonstrates its truth we want to debunk that we want to pull that apart and say no no that's just that's just conditioning of your culture. That's that's completely different. And who knows? Maybe there's a country somewhere where burritos are prized more highly than children. And who are we to say that they're wrong? He's he's debunking all of that. He's saying this is clearly not true. But his point is, if you're within the Tao, if you believe in the Tao, which is objective value, then you realize that the purpose of education is to train young people to respond rightly to reality. But for those people outside of the Tao, if they are logical, and that's a big if, and I think actually. The reason that what he's about to say doesn't happen that much is because people aren't that logical about this. But for those people without, if they are logical, they must regard all sentiments as equally non-rational and as mere mists between us and the real objects. As a result, they must either decide to remove all sentiments as far as possible from the humans, from the pupil's mind, or else to encourage some sentiments for reasons that have nothing to do with their intrinsic justness or ordinancy. Now, between these two lines on the spectrum, I think it's very clear which one is happening more often than not. We are not at all in a place in society right now where people who are professing to exist outside of the Tao are removing sentiments from as much as possible from the pupil's mind. We're celebrating sentiments. So actually what we're doing is encouraging some sentiments 
and discouraging other sentiments for reasons that have nothing to do with their intrinsic justness or ordinancy. Although I would actually say that people argue that it is intrinsic, that it is just and ordinate for some of the sentiments that are being trained into young people these days in schools, that, that these sentiments are actually ordinate, that they're just, and that they're intrinsic. They're intrinsic to what it means to be human. The problem is, and G.K. Chesterton talks about this really well uh, in one of his books, he says that we live in this incoherent, incohesive world where, where a person might go to a, uh, into a certain area, you know, into science or something like that, and argue that men are just animals, and then go into a different situation and, and get angry because men are getting treated like animals. So we live in this kind of cognitive dissonance of saying that we don't believe in objective values, but we do when we want to, and we'll teach kids exactly those objective values when we want to, but we've debunked all the other ones. And the question always comes down to, well, where do these values come from? Are they objective? Are they ordinate? Are they concrete? Do they actually exist in the world? And if they do, where do they come from? Because it's certainly the case that we are absolutely inculcating sentiments in education today, but no one that I've seen has done the work to tell me where exactly they come from and why they deserve to be taught more than other sentiments. And it comes back to that argument that that the notion of propaganda or uh, the ability to disarm the student from being able to actually understand why. You know, you tell them these things and you're you're as you're saying inculcating them to these beliefs, but you haven't given them the capacity to actually engage with it. You've disarmed them to just accept it. Maybe they accept it and they accept everything else as well, but they haven't actually been able to really analytically think about these concepts at a formal and at a first principles level. So maybe we'll use the example that Lewis uses. He talks about this. He says, when a Roman father told his son that it was a sweet and seemly thing to die for his country, Dolce et decorum est et perpetria mori. Uh, it's a poem by uh, Wilfred Owen, actually. It's great. And it's an old saying that it is a sweet and seemly thing to die for one's country. So when a Roman father told his son that, which is an educational process, that's a formational thing, he believed that what he said was true. He was communicating to the son an emotion which he himself shared and which he believed to be in accord with the value which his judgment discerned in noble death. He was giving the boy the best he had, giving of his spirit to humanize him as he had given of his body to beget him. But Gaius and Titius, the writers of the Green Book, the promulgators of this form of education that we're critiquing, they cannot believe that in calling such a death sweet and seemly, they would be saying something important about something because their own method of debunking would cry out against them if they attempted to do so, because there's no objective values. You can't say something important about something. It's simply this father's opinion. So either Guy Sentitious must go the whole way and debunk this sentiment like any other, or they've got to set themselves to work to produce from outside a sentiment which they believe to be of no value to the pupil and which may cost him his life because it is useful to us, the survivors, that our young men should feel it. See what he said here? You cannot believe that it is a sweet and noble thing to die for your country is actually true if you've debunked this whole idea of objective value and truth. However, you might actually want young people to think that so that they will go off and fight in wars and die for their country. So now you've got to come up with some reason 
some way of convincing them that even though you don't really believe in objective values, you want to convince them of this particular value. And he, he goes on to say this, if they embark on this course, the difference between the old and the new education will be an important one. Where the old initiated, the new merely conditions. So that's that word we were using before talking about Brave New World, conditions. It's saying the old initiated because it brought a young person into something that actually concretely exists. But the, the new just conditions based upon the whim of the people who are in charge. Doesn't actually exist. The only thing that exists is the will, is the power of the people who are in control. So the old dealt with its pupils as grown birds deal with young birds when they teach them to fly. But the new deals with them more as the poultry keeper deals with young birds, making them thus or thus for purposes of which the birds know nothing. In a word, the old was a kind of propagation, man transmitting manhood to men. The new is merely propaganda. So that's, that's kind of the difference. And it's a difficult difference. And people who disagree with Lewis are absolutely able. I mean, I don't think they can do it that well, but I've heard people basically say, well, he's just coming at propaganda from another angle. However, he is at least subjecting his perspective to the fact that it is either right or wrong. Whereas the new perspective says, well, there is no right or wrong. And it is basically completely based upon whoever is in power and control at the time. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's a good point to note as well that for Lewis, he's not debating the rightness or wrongness of his educational philosophy compared with another philosophy that believes there are objective values and they're weighing up the pros and cons. He's arguing against a philosophy that is denying any objective value. And so he has to come in with certainty or objectivity of his opinion because he's arguing against the complete opposite of that. Yeah, and, and where what people won't like is probably not that he's arguing in objectivity but they just won't like where he's getting it from. But remember, he's done the work to get it from all of the ancient traditions that have been in existence across cultures, generally speaking. He's, it's generalities, but generally speaking. The fact is that they all exist, they all believe in objective reality, and the footnotes to this go through and talk about the, all the things that they hold in common. Lewis then summarises with a really important image for us. He goes into Plato. He, he reminds us of something that happens in Plato. Uh, he says this, as the king governs by his executive, so reason in man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element. Then he says a really important sentence, the head rules the belly through the chest. So what he means by that is this, right? He's already kind of explained it. Reason, which is the head, it must rule the appetites, which is the belly. That's kind of our physical desires but by means of the spirited element. That's this thing, this just sentiments, this trained magnanimity. The head rules the belly through the chest, the seat of magnanimity, the seat of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. The chest, magnanimity, sentiment. These are the indispensable liaison offices between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said, that it is by this middle element that man is man. For by his intellect, he is mere spirit, and by his appetite, mere animal. The operation of the green book and its kind is to produce what may be called 
men without chests. We're just minds. We're just brains on sticks. Or we're just appetites. We're just physical desires. Or we're both. But there's nothing internal within us that governs how we go about using our reason or which appetites we go about following. And you can see how this fits within this, this men without chest fits within a purely utilitarian educational framework. Because what is the utilitarian's version of good? Well, it's a, an intellectual version of the, just whatever makes us the greatest, uh, whatever helps our GDP, you know? That is our utilitarian framework. And therefore, we don't actually want the workers to be worrying about whether they like what they're doing. We want them to have the capacity to do it. And that's all that it focuses on. Yeah, and it's really interesting that there's a contrast. And again, an incoherency, which I think is really deep-seated in modern education, which is on one hand, utilitarian kind of economic neoliberal education is all about finances. It's all about making money. And on the other hand, a kind of social justice, you know, sentiment imbuing, inculcating approach. These two things are both happening simultaneous to each other. And the crazy thing is that they're at odds with each other because they're missing that middle element that actually grounds them, that actually helps to make sense of it all. Young people growing up in the educational system now, I think it would be absolutely understandable if they get quite confused. They go from class to class, hearing different anthropologies. Nothing's really consistent. They're not really sure what the purpose of education is. I'm pretty sure it's to get a job, but we spend a lot of time talking about social justice issues as well. I'm not really sure what's valuable about them. I don't necessarily, I just kind of go along with what the teachers tell me. If they think too much about it, I think it would get very confusing. And so in general, we kind of teaching them not to think too much about it. Just do what you have to do to get through, C's, get degrees, go out there, get a job, and maybe you will have taken on board some of the social justice issues that we've told you about, even though we've also kind of tried to help you to see that it's all subjective and your opinion really matters regardless of whether you agree with us or not. But there are some things that you really shouldn't disagree with us on, but we don't really have any platform to tell you why that would be the case. And that's exactly the point that Lewis makes at the end of this chapter. He says this, and all the time, such is the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamour for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. It's a brilliant last paragraph there. Again, if you're reading this along the way, highlight that, reread it multiple times. It is, it is awesome. And it highlights a lot of things there. And I think a great point to maybe end on is the understanding that that form of education that castrates and bids the geldings be fruitful, that laughs at honour and finds traitors in its midst, is that that kind of education is one that creates selfish people that are disconnected from the world and unhappy. So it's this virtue, this enterprise. It's it's not even creating anything good in terms of what we what we really need it to do because people are unsatisfied and they're finding themselves lost. And we can bring it all back in some ways to this really monotone version of education that that seeks to remove value from the world. 
We shouldn't be surprised when we teach young people that there's no value in the world, but that they create value. But then at the same time, we demand certain values of them that they get confused. Even, even that they get anxious or that they get metaphysically bored. The great book called Acedia and its discontents that talks about metaphysical boredom. When there's no objective value in the world, everything is up for debate. Everything is a question. But as Lewis says, even though this is a philosophy that we say that we believe in, we don't. We still kind of demand good things of young people at the same time as debunking whether or not good things actually even exist. We want honour, but we laugh at honour. We want goodness, but we suggest that there's no such thing as objective goodness. We castrate and we bid the geldings be fruitful. So that's the end of the first chapter of The Abolition of Man. Uh, it's chunky stuff. It's big. I hope that people might be buying the book and reading along uh, or maybe even listen over the podcast again to try to understand what's going on. But let's be really, really clear. Here's the point that's getting made. Values do exist. If we teach students that they don't, that is still a value. Classical education is all about helping young people to come to align themselves with objective value that actually exists in the world. And Lewis is taking us on a journey to understand what that is. And he's going to go into that more in the second chapter of the book, which is called The Tao or The Way. As he talks about that, which we'll talk about in our next episode, he will end with the final chapter, which is called The Abolition of Man, by helping us to understand what will be the consequences if we do not educate young people in the Tao, if we do not help young people to come to align themselves with objective reality, with objective truth and goodness and beauty. And it is, as he says, the abolition of man, which is the name of the last chapter. So that's it for this week's episode. I trust uh, people are able to follow along. We're doing our best to go slowly through it and to make sure that it makes sense. As we've said, I encourage you to read the book and look forward to you joining James and I next time on Educating Humans.